G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. As we do on a Monday, always good to check in with the Australian Christian Lobby. Martin Isles is the Managing Director of the Australian Christian Lobby, back with us once again. Martin, welcome back to 2020. Good morning, Neil. Good to be back. And I know, Martin, you've been shivering these last couple of days. You're back in Canberra after having some time in warm and sunny Queensland. Uh, How are things looking so far as Canberra? Has it been snowing in your neck of the woods? Uh, Yeah, we had some snow flurries over the weekend, uh, Neil. And having been in Queensland myself not long ago, it's kind of hard to believe (laughs) from other parts of the country where it's sunny and warm and or warming up and on the brink of spring. But uh, no, Canberra's nice and chilly in true Canberra fashion. So uh, uh, back and facing it. Okay. A uh, big one, of course, there was an election on the weekend. The Northern Territory went to the polls. And on Saturday night, I don't know whether you were, but I stayed up uh, late just looking for some idea about how the results might fall. Uh, Labor has won the primary vote. A slight swing away from them. Looks like they'll form government. Uh, What are your perceptions as to what's happened in the Northern Territory on Saturday? Yeah, Neil, I've seen some news articles that are sort of spinning this as, ah, Labor's, you know, been chastised and all the rest of it. But I don't actually think that's right. I think they've done extremely well in the Northern Territory election because people need to remember that at the last election, Labor won with such an overwhelming majority that the opposition, the country Liberal Party, were reduced to two seats. So there was always going to be something of a correction. They would have fully expected that. So for them to come back so strongly, really, and still retain uh, probably a majority um, or very, maybe one seat off and an independent will help get over the line is a pretty good outcome. And what that tells us is that they, um, they, they campaigned pretty much solely on their handling of coronavirus uh, in the Northern Territory. You know, we've kept you safe, we've kept you safe. That was the overwhelming theme. And they've been rewarded for that. And that troubles me. Because I think that a lot of what's going on with the uh, exceedingly aggressive uh, coronavirus lockdowns, uh, the very punitive measures taken on border closures that are actually uh, very, very mean-spirited to many people who need to cross the border for health and the health of relatives and so on, and farmers who can't get their hay over the border and all this, 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 all this stuff, it's being done, it's being encouraged uh, not just for health reasons, but for political reasons. You look at Anastasia Palaszczuk in Queensland, looking at the election in October, for example, she's locked the border again in Queensland. Why? We kept you safe, we kept you safe. It's politics 101. It's working out really nicely for them. I actually think that's a bit of a shame because I don't want politics to take over uh, the handling of this health issue. Um, and I'm, I'm afraid that it will, and we'll lose sight of the main game. Interesting to unpack that idea of politicising coronavirus and borders closing. I did hear one criticism of Scott Morrison saying that having established what's called the National Cabinet uh, in elevating the premiers to equal level uh, as they all sit around the table together, somehow or other the Prime Minister may well have lost some of the respect or lost some of the authority that he ought to have as Prime Minister. Any thoughts around that? 
Yeah, it's an interesting idea. I suspect actually what happened, again, you've got to get inside the political world and people um, people think you're being mean-spirited when you say stuff like this, but, but you're not. This is how politicians are wired. This is how they think. I suspect the Prime Minister was dealing with the crisis very openly and publicly and taking the lead, as he did at the very beginning, uh, when uh, people were looking for help, they were looking for leadership, they were looking for someone to solve the problem, and he acted swiftly, he acted decisively, and he acted well based on the information we had at the time. But I think that political observers can see that this coronavirus thing is going to turn politically a little bit toxic with time as people start to get cabin fever, fever as more and more data comes in from around the world about how that there's uh, increasingly effective treatments available uh, and they're figuring out how to work those treatments better and better, how that places like Sweden, which didn't lock down and which had one of the worst death rates per million in the world, and yet 99.95% of their population has survived, is that really a pandemic? Is, is there something going on here where we could manage this far more effectively than destroy the economy, destroy businesses, destroy, you know, create mental health problems and all the rest of it. And I think that it's going to turn a bit politically murky. So the Prime Minister is probably wisely uh, just taking a little bit of a backseat and the state premiers are probably going to deal with uh, the, the hard end of this crisis. But hopefully, uh, you know, as a man of principle, he will be working in the background to try and uh, ameliorate that for them. Just before we leave the Northern Territory, uh, that was a little diversion, I guess, uh, talking about all sorts of things, even internationally, but uh, where we've got uh, Labor likely to hold power in the Northern Territory, uh, the message, we've kept you safe, and that'll be ringing in the ears of uh, Queensland politicians, as you say, Anastasia Palaszczuk. There's also an election coming up in the ACT, whether it'll hold just the same there. Uh, but uh, just while we're focusing on the Northern Territory, a lot of people were looking at the new party, the Territory Alliance, led by Terry Mills. And of course, as from what I understand, it looks like he might not even have won a seat there. Uh, do you think that it made much of a difference, this new party, a, a little bit of incursion into there? And I know that they had an, a more openness to uh, some of the sorts of uh, issues that we'll often talk about on this uh, conversation each week. Uh, any thoughts around what's happened with the Territory Alliance? I think the Territory Alliance actually did pretty well, uh, and that's not shown up in the number of seats they won, uh, which looks to be zero. It's shown up in the share of the vote that they achieved which was 13%. That's pretty good for a party uh, having a crack at an election for the very first time. Uh, in fact, that's extremely good by Australian standards. Uh, so I was impressed to see that. I know that they did hope at least for Terry Mills to win his seat. And there was the media put a fair bit of pressure on Terry uh, in the latter days of the campaign, you know, trying to wrong foot him on policy costings and issues like fracking that would call, you know, and painting a picture that he was confused and all the rest of it, which I don't believe he was, actually. But, but you know, he did come under that pressure. But the reality is, I suppose, uh, Terry's a Christian man, um, and there's a number of Christians in that party, and I suppose you will be put to the test if you step into the public square as a Christian these days, even if you don't do it on a Christian basis. But, you know, they always sniff you out. <laughs> and those of us that have been there, done that, know that we get put to the test. And and he was, but 13%, Neil, I actually think that's a pretty extraordinary result for a first crack, and maybe they'll do better next time. 
And just before we move on from the Northern Territory and, you know, lots of Northern Territory listeners uh, listening into our conversation today, interested in your thoughts here, uh, the idea that 50% of people in the Northern Territory had voted early, I wonder whether this is a growing trend we're seeing and uh, whether that affects, if you think, uh, you know, the different parties need to adjust their campaign strategies because of the fact that 50% of the people, it may happen in the state of Queensland, may happen in the ACT coming up, that, that 50% vote early. I mean, what are your thoughts around the idea of early voting? And it could be a coronavirus issue too, uh, voting early. But what are your thoughts here, Martin? Uh, it really does change things, <clears throat> Neil. Uh, you know the old saying that a week is a long time in politics. And uh, what used to happen was the politicians could bargain on everyone voting at the same time. And so the reality was that the four weeks before the election were basically everything. It almost didn't matter what happened a year ago. It didn't matter what happened six months ago. Uh, You know, people have short memories uh, and politics can change fast uh, and the headwinds can blow in a different direction suddenly. And for politicians, it was always about the four weeks before the election, but even more crucial than that, the one week before the election. You know, it was like, you know, don't put a foot wrong. Don't make a gaffe. Don't say, you know, seven instead of three when you're talking about the economic figures, as if that really is the thing that matters. It's not. But unfortunately, that's the way that it was. And that's how political campaigns were built. But now with people voting way earlier and with actually the almost the bulk of the vote now being already cast by the time the election campaign is underway in earnest, it really changes the way politicians have to think about their campaign strategy, how early they've got to start thinking about it. But I like it because I think it's actually starting to unpick the old-fashioned political campaign and it's starting to measure people uh, on their performance over a longer period of time. So I'm all for this early voting, this postal voting, uh, because I think the old-fashioned political campaign They just weren't realistic. Well, that's an interesting perspective, and I think uh, some will say a refreshing perspective to hear, that actually it may not be such a bad thing, that uh, you can make your judgment on parties as they stand at the beginning of the campaign rather than waiting right up until the end and uh, all of the manipulative tactics that happen in the lead-up to actual election day. Hey, let's move on. As Labor governments around the nation are rushing to outdo each other with anti-conversion legislation, uh, you've warned of a few dangers especially in places like the Australian Capital Territory. Uh, What are your thoughts around this anti-conversion legislation? We've seen it happen in Queensland already. They're leading the way. Uh, Now there's a bit of a rush on for the uh, the ACT as well. Yeah, Neil, this is really, really difficult. This is one of the most astonishing attacks uh, on people of faith. It probably is the most astonishing that I have seen uh, ever. Um, This anti-conversion legislation, which is a good way to put it, Uh, It really puts parents, Christian parents, and actually just ordinary Australian parents under fire. Uh, It is an attack on faith-based schools and other institutions. Uh, It is an attack on churches, pastors, synagogues, um, all sorts. Look, uh, we got some legal advice on the bill here in the ACT that may well pass the Legislative Assembly on Thursday. And some examples of what that legal advice did were, firstly, if you're a parent and you have a, a child, let's say it's a boy, let's say he's five years old, If he comes home from school or whatever or something happens and he says, Mum, Dad, I think I'm a girl and I want to be a girl. If you as a parent do anything less, anything less than affirm him in that belief, then you could face criminal charges. Now, that is what the bill says, uh, clear as day. If you're a faith-based school 
and you teach that there are two genders as part of your biblical studies program and creation and all the rest of it, you could face, uh, uh, you could be hauled up to the ACT Human Rights Tribunal uh, just for that, and you, the integrity of your Christian school is under fire. If you're a pastor and you preach in the pulpit and you read a scripture like 1 Corinthians 6 or Romans 1 uh, or, or so many others, again, you could face a conversion practice complaint. What this bill does is that there's, if you're someone who thinks and believes anything other than humans uh, need to be affirmed in their sexual and gender choices or feelings, then you are somebody who will be punished. It is actually that serious. Now, I'm very grateful for our ACT supporters. Thousands of them have called in response to our getting in touch with them and asking them to do so. Thousands have called their elected representatives over the last week. And this outpouring uh, of concern is like nothing that the politicians here have ever seen. And so we look like we may make some progress on that this week. It really looks like there could be some movement from the government and maybe the opposition will find their courage and and actually oppose this because they're too scared to do so. Uh, And uh, we are making progress, but people need to know this is happening. The ACT bill's the worst. It'll be a template for Victoria for sure. Uh, And they need to know and be ready to speak when this comes to their part of the world. Uh, Interested in your focus that it, you know, while many of us might have thought, oh, this is legislation designed to speak to the uh, psychological uh, counselling community, uh, those who might ra- make recommendations from a medical perspective. But but what you're saying is that this actually looks more like an astonishing attack on people of faith, on faith-based institutions, on churches, even on parents. So uh, how do you think the Christian community ought to look at what's happened and perhaps uh, how w- the Christian community might respond? Yeah, that's right, Neil. Um, I think in in Queensland it became a little different because ACL and other groups really got busy up there uh, and raised a voice against the legislation. So it was significantly watered down and it mainly applies to medical professionals now. It's still no good, but it mainly applies to medical professionals. So we, we at least got it bashed down to a smaller size, even if we didn't completely kill it. But that's a job maybe for after the election with the next government. Here in the ACT, still in Victoria, proposals in South Australia that are coming online, much more serious stuff. And we've got to do the same. We have to attack it. And what I would say to Christians is so often we can be afraid to speak about these things because even the name, you know, LGBT conversion therapy, none of us want to be seen to be mean. None of us want to be seen to be supporting, you know, barbaric practices and coercive things and 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 and, and abuse and all that. And nobody supports that. And by the way, uh, you know, footnote: that's not happening in Australia today, as it should not be. And if that's all that was being banned, that'd be fine. But I'd say to Christians, you know, this is a time for courage. Um, this is a time to, you know, maybe uh, cop a little bit of flack for standing up and speaking on this because it isn't what it seems. And uh, we need to tell our neighbours. We need tell our churches and we need to get involved in these campaigns to raise a voice so that the truth is heard and known. Otherwise, this stuff will just get put through in secret as they try to do here in the ACT. It will get put through in secret behind the scenes. And in a few years' time, activists will start to use these laws and they'll start to attack Christians. Okay, just quickly on another issue that's uh, that's bubbling along in Victoria, there are some allegations uh, that the first drug injecting room in North Richmond has become a COVID-19 cluster site. And of course, uh, there's plans for a second injecting room. Uh, you've had a few things to say about this over the past uh, few days. What are your thoughts on what's developing in Victoria? 
Well, look, I mean, the Victorian government likes this idea of setting these in safe, what they call safe injecting rooms, where drug users can come and be supervised while they, uh, you know, shoot up and that kind of thing. And uh, look, the the health problems uh, and the destruction of lives uh, and all of that doesn't go away just because you have a safe injecting room. Uh, it's a coronavirus hotspot now, uh, among many other things, a hotspot for all kinds of abuses uh, and, and, and ruined lives and pain and all the rest of it. And there is a theory, I guess, out there that says, oh, you know, making this illegal, it doesn't, it doesn't eradicate it completely. So why don't we just try and make it legal? Uh, and that way, you know, maybe we can help people uh, and they won't be scared to reveal the fact that they abuse drugs or they do some other thing. It's called harm minimization. And the research is pretty clear. It, it, it doesn't appear to work. It doesn't appear to make a big difference. But what it does do is that these communities that live around these drug-injecting rooms, they really, really struggle because they have all sorts of types of people coming by. They've got young children. There's syringes dumped in the streets. They, 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 they talk about and all sorts of things like this. It's not good for the community. There should be a hard line on this, and the government should say, no, actually, it's wrong. And the reason I say that is because, you know, sometimes you get a study that goes this way, Sometimes you get a study that goes that way about the effectiveness of these things. I think, frankly, people, when they talk about this stuff, they talk through a lens of ideology, whether they think drugs should be legal or should not be legal. And I say they definitely should not be legal because that's the biblical standard. The biblical standard is that the law is a teacher about what is right and what is wrong. Drug abuse is wrong and therefore it should not be permitted. The law should sanction it and say that it is wrong and not make provision for this kind of thing. Now, I think the research backs me up on that and says that it's the best way to go. So there was a drug injecting room, a second one being proposed in Melbourne, and through uh, ACL efforts and local community concern being raised, it's been cancelled. So that's a great thing, but I think this one should be got rid of as well. Okay. Well, Martin Isles, Managing Director of the Australian Christian Lobby, and you'll find all sorts of good resources on the ACL website. I'll point listeners to acl.org.au. That's acl.org.au. Martin Isles, thanks so much for the update today on 2020. Thank you. Uh, That's always my pleasure, Neil. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.